Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One of the most robust creatures on the planet is the cockroach. Gross things, yes, but you have to admire its ability to survive. I mean, they've been around for 280 million years. Not only can a cockroach hold its breath for 40 minutes, live for a month without food, and run up to three miles per hour, but one can live for up to a week without its head. I repeat, without its head. It's very impressive. But there's a tiny creature known as a tardigrade that's even tougher. One of these things is about a half a millimeter long, but they're almost impossible to kill. They can survive temperatures of minus 273 degrees Celsius, which is absolute zero. You physically cannot get colder than that. That means that a tardigrade can survive in the vacuum of space, and we'll get right back to business if you warm them up. At the other end of the spectrum, a tardigrade can handle pressures six times greater than what you'd find at the bottom of the ocean. That's 30,000 times more than the atmosphere around us. You could even boil one of these buggers in alcohol, and they'll be fine. And if things dry up, a tardigrade will shrivel into a little ball and can stay that way without water for years. This is the only creature to survive all five of Earth's great extinctions. Okay, so why, why am I talking about tardigrades and cockroaches? Because we're about to get into more of the history of the longest living electronic media we've ever known. Many attempts have been made to kill it, yet it's still here. And I apologize to referring to my compatriots in this business as cockroaches, but uh, you should actually wear that as a badge of honor. This is 100 Years of Radio, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. From 1970, that's the Velvet Underground with a song about hearing great songs on the radio. And that's called Rock and Roll. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our look back at 100 years of this thing that we call radio. Not only are we looking at the history of the medium, but I'm also trying to explain why things work in radio the way they do. Let's begin this chapter with the origins of the phrase top 40. Now, that's, that's a bit of a strange number. Why 40 and not some other number? We need to go back to an empty bar in Omaha, Nebraska. We're a bit foggy on the air. It might be 1951, could be 1955. It all depends on which version of the story you want to believe. Todd Storrs and Bill Stewart had been hired to fix a radio station called KOWH. This station was dead last in Omaha, and Storrs and Stewart had to find some way of turning things around. As they sat in this bar, the story goes, they noticed that people kept going over to the jukebox and playing the same several songs over and over and over again all night. Now, that gave them an idea. Why not play records on the radio like they were being played on that jukebox? The same big songs over and over and over again. Give the people what they want. Repetition. This is such an important lesson. People always ask, why do radio stations play the same songs over and over again? The answer is because decades of doing this has proven time and time again that this is what you need to do in order to get any kind of ratings. Commercial radio was supported by advertising. Running commercials is the only way to make money. 
The more people you have listening to your station, the more you can charge for running commercials. And playing the hits on repeat is how you get more people to listen. Now, look, if this did not work, do you think everybody would be doing it? Radio station owners will play almost anything if it attracts the ears of the public. And decades of experience have proven that repetition of songs works. Okay, back to Stores and Stewart. Legend has it that they then picked 40 songs for the playlist at this radio station, KOWH, and played them over and over and over again. When they started, KOWH had a 4% share of the market. Six months later, it had a 45% share. And it was only a matter of time before this formula was copied all over the world. So that's the legend of Top 40. Okay, here's the real story. Sometime in the early 1950s, stores ran a New Orleans radio station. A competing radio station was killing him with a program called the Top 20 at 1280. 1280 being the dial position of the station. Thinking that 40 was twice as good as 20, Stores launched a program called the Top 40 at 1450. 1450 being the frequency of that station. And he started it an hour earlier. When Stores moved to Omaha several years later, he just expanded that Top 40 concept to 24 hours a day. In any event, you can thank or blame Todd Stores for Top 40 Radio, the form of music radio that dominates even today. The Talking Heads from their 1986 album, True Stories, that's Radiohead. And uh, yeah, that is where the band got their name. In the 1950s, radio was the main vehicle for the spread of this new thing called rock and roll. This is worth exploring. There were predictions in the late 1940s that television was going to kill radio. And if you know how radio was made and used back then, you can see why. Radio just wasn't for music and news. There were soap operas and dramas. There were comedies and live concerts. The radio stars of the day rivaled those of motion pictures when it came to fame. But with the arrival of television, a lot of radio stars made the jump to the new medium. The period from 1948 to 1952 was for television what the 1920s were for radio. The thinking was, well, I just listen to your entertainment when you could watch it. Radio's dead. It's done. Well, no. It evolved from carrying all kinds of entertainment to largely a vehicle for music. And the thing that allowed this thing to happen was a new trend called rock and roll. A couple of things allowed rock and roll to spread as fast as it did. The first was radio in the car. The world became more mobile in the years following World War II, and people wanted to take their radios with them. The first car radio was appeared in 1930, the Motorola 5T71. It was a huge and delicate thing with vacuum tubes, and they were expensive. A car might sell for $600 back then. The radio option might put another 120 on top of that. Now, there were politicians who hated this whole concept. It was the equivalent of today's campaigns of getting people to stop texting and Facebooking while driving. The leader of the anti-radio distracted driving campaign was George A. Parker, the registrar of motor vehicles in the state of Massachusetts. He wanted the state to ban the installation and use of radios in cars. Listening to radio while driving causes crashes, he said, and he came very close to having his way. But the good citizens of Massachusetts rose up as one and shouted him down. Parker went on to target drunk drivers instead, which was 
much better thing. The other thing was the iPod, the iPhone of its day, the transistor radio. Up until 1954, radios were big, clunky pieces of furniture that took up space in the living room. Listening to the radio was a communal experience, something that the whole family did at the same time. People gathered around the big radio, much like they'd soon gather around the big TV. This made it very difficult for the young people of the mid-50s who were looking to be different from their parents. And one of the things that allowed them to be different was a new radio, the transistor radio. Transistor radios were tiny portable things that could be taken anywhere. They also came with little earpieces, which meant you could listen to them privately. It was to the young people of the 1950s what smartphones are to young people today. It was a liberating device. The transistor radio and rock and roll arrived at exactly the same time. This new social and economic construct called a teenager could then take his or her music with them everywhere out of sight and out of earshot of mom and dad. And when you consider the impact of rock music on society, the transistor radio became one of the most important technological innovations of the 20th century. By serving up rock and roll anywhere, anytime, it became a delivery mechanism for a cultural revolution, a social revolution, an economic revolution, a political revolution, a technological revolution, and a sexual revolution. That's Jonathan Richmond, The Modern Lover, singing about driving at night with the radio blasting. That song is from 1972, by the way. AM radio was the thing from the invention of radio until the late 1970s. And this is what it was like at its peak. Los Angeles. 601 in Surf City, Los Angeles, with Charlie Tuna. Charlie Tuna, 93KHJ. I stand on my records. Break some tunes. 603 from KHJ. Sounds like a resuscitator unit gone wild. The zombies, time. Some AM stations had big, big signals that could be heard thousands of miles away, especially at night when the atmosphere turned into a big mirror, reflecting AM broadcasts back from space down to Earth. There was also something called clear channel stations, meaning that their good dial positions and powerful transmitters were grandfathered into any new regulations. A 50,000-watt clear channel radio station could be heard across three dozen states and a bunch of provinces. No other stations were allowed to use that frequency, so their signals were interference-free. But then there were the stations in Mexico. While Canadian and American AM stations were capped at 50,000 watts, some stations in Mexico ran at 100,000, 250,000, or even 500,000 watts. Those stations could be heard everywhere, even Europe and the Soviet Union, if the atmospheric conditions were right. Birds and other animals coming too close to the transmitters would be literally cooked to death because of the amount of radio frequency radiation. The stations right on the other side of the U.S.-Mexican border were called border blasters, and the most famous of all of them was XERFAM in Ciudad Acuna, which is right across the border from Del Rio, Texas. The station boasted that if you got into a car in New York, you could drive all the way to L.A. without losing the signal. XERFAM was the home of a guy named Robert Smith, better known as Wolfman Jack. And if you've ever seen the movie American Graffiti, you'll know the guy. There was also XERB, which ran at 500,000 watts, half a million watts, 
out of Rosarito Beach near Tijuana and just 10 minutes from the border crossing with San Diego. They were really sneaky. First, the station branded itself as being the mighty 1090 in Hollywood. Second, they said that they only ran at 50,000 watts, which was the legal limit for a U.S. AM station. Wolfman Jack worked there, too, recording his shows in Los Angeles and then shipping them south. Here's a sample from 1966. This is 50,000 Watt Clear Channel XCRB, Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles, 1090 on your dial. Hey, baby, welcome on in here to the Wolfman Jack Show for a Tuesday night. He rocks in the treetop all the day long, hopping and a-popping and a-singing his song. Border Blaster radio stations were a huge, huge deal in the 1960s. And now you know the inspiration behind this song from Wall of Voodoo. Stan Ridgeway and his band Wall of Voodoo singing about Mexican radio. Border Blasting Mexican AM radio from 1983. Okay, that's... That's a lot about AM radio. What about FM? Well, we'll get to that next. On part one of this program on the history of radio, we went through the story of FM, how Edwin Armstrong invented the medium, how he was cheated out of his patents, and how he ended up jumping out of a building. But what he created continues to live on as the world's most popular form of radio broadcasting. There was no question that FM was superior to AM. Much better sound, almost no static from lightning or power lines, automobile ignition systems, streetcar lines, or anything else like that. But because AM was so big and so profitable and so powerful, no one wanted to invest in anything that might spoil the party. In many cities, up to 50% of the population listened to that one big AM radio station. 50%. And even if you were in second or third place in the ratings, you were still making buckets of money, so why rock that boat? And no one wanted to be the one to tell the public that to get FM, you needed to buy a special new radio. But there were a few experimental FM stations in the U.S. that started broadcasting in the 30s. Canada really didn't get on board until the 1960s, at least as far as commercial radio goes. The CBC started working with FM in the 50s, and the first private commercial FM station in Canada appears to be CKVL in Montreal. The problem is that nobody seems to remember when it first signed on. Could have been as early as 1947 or as late as 1957. That's how much people took notice of FM in those days. CKVL exists today as CQA FM. Oh, by the way, CKVL does exist today. It's now called CQA FM. Western Europe got into FM radio after World War II because the AM band was way too crowded, too much interference. German broadcasters were stripped of all their AM frequencies, save for two. So the only option they had was to make the move to FM. Hence, German manufacturers like Blaupunkt being the first to make FM radios in large numbers. Meanwhile, in England, the BBC started FM broadcasting in 1955. Unlicensed pirate broadcasters were the first to use FM in Italy and Greece. And although Australia got into FM broadcasting as early as 1947, 
all experimental stations, and that's all they were as experimental stations, were abandoned in 1961. FM stayed dormant in Australia until 1975. New Zealand didn't get private FM stations until 1983. The first FM radio for cars appeared in 1952, thanks to Blaupunkt, yes, that German company. The following year, Becker introduced what we think was the first AM-FM radio. Those units used old-fashioned vacuum tubes, which would burn out or come loose. The first all-transistor radio for the car appeared in 1963, and again, that came from Becker. And in 1969, Becker introduced the first ever FM stereo radio for the car. Station owners who acquired FM signals needed to put something on them. So for years, FM stations were simply used as simulcasts of their AM stations. Same AM programming, except that it sounded better on FM. They figured, eh, why not? We're not making any money from FM, so why invest anything in it beyond the cost of the transmitter and a little electricity? But in the middle 60s, there was a shift. Popular music was moving from singles to albums. And at the same time, people were starting to get into high-fidelity music. And FM was the perfect medium for broadcasting this music because it sounded so good. Rules started to come in that discouraged simulcasting AM signals on FM. So that means station owners had to figure out how to create some new programming on the cheap. They didn't want to spend too much money, but they had to invest in something. And a few started to turn their FM stations over to long-haired, dope-smoking DJs. Their style and the style of these stations was exactly the opposite of the fast-talking, super-hyped AM radio guy. Here's a sample. This is a station in Houston called KFMK. It promised progressive rock 24 hours a day. And what you're about to hear is exactly how the station sounded, complete with all the pauses and dead air. The Jefferson Airplane. Triad. Wow. Song written by, I believe, which? Crosby. Ex of the Birds. I believe we asked uh, the airplane when they were up here, which it was. I believe it's Dave Crosby. One of the Crosbys. Uh, that, that was typical. That's what people listened to back in the day. Steely Dan once wrote a song about FM radio called FM No Static at All for a movie soundtrack in 1977. We could play that, but I found this cover by an Australian power pop specialist named Michael Carpenter instead. As good as FM radio sounded, it really didn't trouble AM radio much until the late 1970s. By that time, more cars were getting FM radios. More people had FM stereo receivers at home. And more music fans wanted to hear their music in the highest possible quality. AM had been the dominant form of broadcasting since 1920. But 58 years later, 1978, it was time to give up the crown. And that's when FM listening exceeded that of AM in the United States. AM radio nearly died out, and it would be extinct if not for the rise of right-wing talk radio and sports radio. However, in Canada, 
AM stations playing music continued to be very successful well into the 80s. That's because the rules governing FM made sure that you couldn't replicate AM programming on FM so that AM station owners would be protected from the better technology. Instead, there was this focus, these rules, that made FM broadcasting as diverse as possible, as different as possible from AM. It was actually illegal to run a top 40 format on FM in Canada. That was because of something known as the hit-non-hit rule. This specified that no more than 49% of the songs played on FM could have made it into the top 40. The other 51% had to be non-hits, songs that never made it past number 41 on the charts, or they had to be non-singles, so album tracks in other words. And there was more. You couldn't play a song more than 18 times a week on an FM station. Top 40 formats required at least three times that repetition to work. FM stations also had to run specialty programs outside their usual music. So a rock station would have to run, by law, a jazz show or a classical music program or a blues show or all three. And there were also big, big requirements for how much talk you needed to do every week. Spoken word from hosts and DJs was broken into categories like mosaic and foreground and surveillance. And woe to any radio station who did not adhere to all these rules. You could actually have your broadcasting license taken away. It was insanely difficult to keep track of all these requirements and quotas, but it forced Canadian radio to evolve differently than what happened in America, even after all these rules were dropped in the 1990s. The effect of that evolution can still be heard today. British radio sounds different still in terms of presentation because of the influence of the BBC. Private commercial radio did not come to the UK until 1973. And even after all this time, the BBC's influence is still felt in the way private broadcasters do things. Today, FM is the dominant form of radio. But even that's changing. We'll get back to that in a bit. First, though, time for some Queens of the Stone Age. And God is in the radio. Josh Homme and Queens of the Stone Age singing about what comes out of the radio. There have always been other options when it comes to listening to music in the car. In the 1950s, Chrysler and DeSoto cars could be ordered with an in-dash turntable. I'm not kidding, seriously. But they weren't very good and they soon disappeared. A-track players first appeared in Ford vehicles in the fall of 1965. And by the end of the 1960s, cassette players started showing up. CD players and changers debuted in 1984. But it wasn't until 1999 that a new form of broadcasting made it into the car. That's satellite radio. It began with three companies, XM, Sirius, and WorldSpace. XM and Sirius merged in 2008 to form Sirius XM to avoid going bankrupt like WorldSpace did in 2009. Without getting too technical, satellite radio uses something called the S-band, which is part of the spectrum of microwaves, 2.31 to 2.36 gigahertz, to be exact which is just below what we use for cordless phones and some Wi-Fi. Because these signals come down from satellites orbiting the Earth at a very high altitude, satellite radio is kind of like those old border blaster stations. We can drive all over North America and still get the same series of channels. The signals cover millions upon millions of square miles. That's cool, but there are disadvantages. You have to pay a subscription fee for satellite radio. It's not terribly portable unless you use an app, but even then, you need a subscription and you have to burn up data. 
And not all the channels are commercial-free, which is a very big deal to some people. Is satellite radio a competitor to terrestrial radio? Well, yes and no. They each have their role and use. And now we're, we're basically living in a state of peaceful coexistence. Big Daddy only here, are you listening to me on the satellite radio? Have the galaxies in where the stars burn wide, are you tuning in and turning on? Is there anybody listening to Earth Unite on the satellite radio? Steve Earle, singing about satellite radio. There were other forms of broadcasting, too. Some parts of the world have adopted something called DAB, or Digital Audio Broadcasting. This isn't AM or FM, but a completely different set of frequencies that broadcast digital signals instead of analog ones. MP2 files, if you really want to get technical. DAB started in Europe and almost came to Canada, but because the United States refused to adopt the European standards, something about them interfering with their military frequencies, DAB never took hold, even after Canadian broadcasters spent millions experimenting with the new technologies. Meanwhile, large swaths of the world are all in when it comes to DAB. For example, 99.7% of the population of Norway is served up by DAB broadcasting. Switzerland is at 99.5%. Germany is at 98%, which is a little more than the UK. Canada and the US? 0%. This, as some of those other countries, are so happy with digital audio broadcasting that they're shutting down all their AM and FM transmitters leaving North America with a very old technology. America insisted on something called HD radio. And before you ask, there's nothing necessarily high definition about it. HD radio is just a trademark like Kleenex or aspirin. It is digital, but these signals piggyback on standard analog FM signals. If you've purchased a car since about 2012, chances are that it has an HD radio in the dashboard. The problem is that the general public really hasn't shown much of an appetite for using these frequencies. Ask a person on the street about HD radio, and they'll go, huh, what? HD radio has potential, but enthusiasm seems stillborn. Back with a few more tidbits about this thing we call radio in just a sec, including why we're about to hear a bunch of commercials. There are a couple more things I want to cover before we wrap up this two-parter on 100 years of radio. The first is the history of what we just heard, the radio commercial. Like I said earlier, terrestrial radio has always been free. You turn it on, there it is. The only way traditional radio stations make money is by selling advertising time. And the more listeners a station has, the more it can charge for advertising. That's private radio. National radio like the CBC and the BBC are funded, at least in part, by governments, which is why most state radio doesn't run ads. But let's go back. When radio took hold in the early 1920s, no one was sure how to monetize the new technology. It cost money to send these electromagnetic signals over the air, and there was no way to charge for those signals back then. So how did you pay for everything and turn a profit? Well, the answer was advertising. Back in those early days, most stations were owned by companies that made radios. That was the purpose of radio stations, help sell more radios for their parent company that made radios. As far as we can tell, the modern radio commercial was born in August 1922 when WEAF, an AM station in New York City, ran the first radio ad. WEAF wasn't owned by any big company that could subsidize costs. They were on their own when it came to finances. So they came up with the idea of selling slices of radio time to sponsors. The first commercial was for the Hawthorne Court Apartments in Jackson Heights. 
the station got $50 for 10 minutes of paid programming. Things were slow at first, but by October 1922, WEAF had made $550 in ad sales. The first commercial jingle, a radio commercial with singing, was aired by Wheaties. This is from 1926. Have you tried Wheaties? Their whole wheat with all of the brand. Won't you try Wheaties? For wheat is the best food of man. They're crispy and crunchy the whole year through. The kiddies never tire of them and neither will you. So just buy Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land. Other stations noticed, and by 1930, about 90% of American radio stations were running commercials. And the return on the investment was huge. The Selector, singing about their radio back in 1979. A few years after that song appeared, a new form of musical entertainment appeared that threatened radio, MTV and music video channels. Remember how video was supposed to have killed the radio star? Uh, yeah, no. How many 24-hour video channels are there today? And uh, how many radio stations are there? Yeah. I, I could play the Buggles video killed the radio star, but that would be a lazy cliche, so I'm not going to do it. Instead, let's look at radio's future prospects. Some people have said that streaming is going to kill radio. Well, I beg to differ. Streaming is fantastic when it comes to listening to music, but horrible when it comes to providing context to what you're listening to. When done properly, the trusty radio announcer tells you why a song, an artist, an album, a sound, a scene, why they all matter. What went into it? What to listen for? In short, radio people can give you the information to make music more meaningful and more impactful. Radio is becoming more interactive. A big change came with the rise of the internet. With websites, radio had pictures and text and on-demand audio and video for the first time. Oh, speaking of on-demand, radio is investing a lot into podcasts. And when you think about it, podcasting is actually just another form of radio. The industry has always been brilliant at creating great audio information and entertainment, and the infrastructure and expertise has been there for over a hundred years. So, you know, a move into podcasting is a no-brainer. We're facing a new revolution with 5G technology. This new super high-speed connectivity has the potential to change things in ways that we can't even imagine. Some experts say that this is like when the internet first started being adopted in the middle 90s. No one could have predicted what's happened with the internet in such a short period of time and how much change has resulted. Meanwhile, though, traditional terrestrial radio remains popular, powerful, and profitable. So don't believe anybody who says, no one listens to the radio anymore, or radio is dead. And yes, we know there is much evolution and change ahead of us, but because things continue to work so well, it's kind of like changing the wings on an airplane while flying at 38,000 feet kind of tricky. But we will be with you for a while yet. And remember what I said about being a cockroach or a tardigrade. We're kind of like that. I hope you enjoyed this look at 100 years of radio. It has a fascinating history and, if you ask me, a bright future. 
I've been a radio fan since I was six, still part of it. I've seen lots and lots and lots and lots of changes, but every single time, radio has adapted, evolved, and not just survived, but thrived. And I don't see that changing. This program used to be just a radio show, but in an example of evolution, it is now available as a podcast for on-demand listening. You can choose from hundreds of episodes anytime you're ready at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day with all manner of music and radio-related information. Get the free daily newsletter to make sure you never miss anything. And we can also connect through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.